Chapter 9 Jackie started her car in the direction of the library, but soon it strayed. Or she strayed it. Whatever the verb is to cause to stray. Corrupted. She corrupted her car towards her mother's house. Her mother had called, and being a good daughter was as convenient an excuse as any, anything to avoid the library. She turned onto Desert Elm Drive, a name which was evocative of nothing real. She drove past the antiques mall. The antiques in the window were especially cute, wrestling with each other and playfully snapping at each other's tails. But she could never seem to justify the money for an antique, and besides, she was rarely home, so how would she care for one? Her mother lived in the neighborhood of Sandpit, which was between the developments of Palm Frond Majesty and the Weeping Miner. It was a neighborhood of single-family homes, with small front yards, mostly kept gravel by water-conscious residents, and backyards that rose steeply into hills unsuitable for planting without extensive and time-consuming terracing. Her mother's house was like any house that was pink with green highlights, or any house with a manually opening wooden garage door fallen half away to splinters, and any house with a rosemary bush slowly encroaching its way into every other plant in the yard, and a front gate that sagged into rusted hinges, and a thick green lawn that frustrated her water-conscious neighbors. Her house could easily be mistaken for any other house that happened to be identical to it. Jackie felt unease she could not express with any sort of coherent gesture or incoherent word when she eyed the house. Something about the house was unfamiliar to her. Her heart was beating in her chest, which is where it usually beat. She got out of the car and thought about all else she could be doing now, like driving through the desert in that Mercedes that was in her pawn shop, destination unknown. Or no, glancing down at her hand, she knew exactly the destination, didn't she? With the top down, searing air and dust running through her hair, pretending that the discomfort of driving with the top down was enjoyable because it, as an action, signified enjoyment. Or finally treating herself to a nice prefix dinner with wine pairings and complimentary anti-venoms at Nightvale's hottest foodie spot, tourniquet. Or standing very still out in the dunes at night until the lights came down around her and she felt herself lifted by cold alien hands taken away somewhere secret and far away for research never to return. All the fun she could be having, except she had never done any of those things and if she were honest, and she sometimes was, she had never wanted to. What she liked was routine. Her routine was her life. If she thought about it, her life hadn't added up to much at all, but she never thought about it, except now. Every time she saw that paper in her hand, she thought about it. It was ghastly, all this thinking. Her mother was waiting at the open door. Oh, Jackie, I'm glad you came. Jackie followed her inside. The house was immaculate, as though no one lived there. Some people prefer to make their homes so neat there is no evidence of life anywhere at all. You had something to say, I think, Jackie said. I came by to hear it. You were always quick to the point, even as a child. Her mother led Jackie into the kitchen, which was as pristine as the living room. The colors were teal and raspberry, the same as every other room in the house, with accents of mint. It resembled a model home, and Jackie wondered if the perfect oranges perfectly arranged in the glass bowl on the counter were just wax. Jackie looked again at the oranges. The kitchen. 
the clean walls and furniture. She was not sure she had ever been inside this house. Of course she must have grown up here, unless her mother moved after she had grown old enough to move away. But she would have heard about it, probably been involved in the moving process, probably even the process of picking a new place. Also, at 19, she couldn't have moved away from home very long ago, but nothing about the house was familiar to her. She looked around the kitchen, trying to guess which drawer held the silverware, the surest sign of kitchen familiarity, and she hadn't a clue. Do you remember years ago when we had your best friends Anna and Gracia over for a party and you were annoyed because your birthday wasn't until the next day? asked her mother. Ah, Jackie said. Mm, she said. She slipped open a drawer trying to appear like a person who casually knows where the silverware is. The drawer was full of dish towels. I tried to explain that the next day was a school day, and the elementary administration sends armed posses of school children after truants, but you just wouldn't listen. Always stubborn, you. Her mother's eyes were wide, and her lower lip was folded under her teeth. Her fingers were pressed pale into the Formica counter. Jackie tried another drawer. It was full of an opaque, fatty liquid, simmering from some invisible heat source. No. Jackie told herself. She hadn't been looking for the hot milk drawer. The silverware drawer. If she knew where that was, then she knew the house. If she didn't, then... I've never been inside this house, she said. Her mother didn't look surprised. When you were ten, you hit your head on this counter here. I thought you'd be hurt, but instead you were laughing. You said it reminded you of a character in a movie during a funny fall, and that picturing it that way from a distance made it hurt less. You couldn't stop laughing. How did I even know to come here? Now Jackie was afraid again, and it made her angry. In her anger, she slammed open another drawer, but again, not silverware. This is where silverware should go. If you think about the kitchen in terms of workflow, and who even has two hot milk drawers? You had a knack for hurting yourself, but a natural tendency to not really feel it, said her mother. I remember when you got stung when your birthday pinata was filled with bees. That taught you a valuable lesson about birthdays in general. Remember that? I remember the pawn shop. I remember days at the pawn shop going back and back. What I don't remember is where your silverware drawer is. Where is it? Where's the drawer? There had never been information more important to her. She crumpled the slip of paper in her left hand and then fanned herself with it, not a single crease in it. I don't have one, dear. You know that. We're both getting very worked up. You better sit down. We'll figure this and everything else out if we just have more water. It's important. It will help with your migraines. I don't get migraines. Her mother glanced out the window, and Jackie followed the glance, physically, to the window. Her anger was a creature now, and it walked behind her, pushing her along. There was her mother's yard, neat grass bordered by gravel, the grass kept alive with an artificial life support system of pumps and machines stretching hundreds of miles to the nearest reservoir, its roots barely clinging to the sandy topsoil mixed heavily with chemical fertilizer. Beyond the lawn, terraced on the steep hill, were plants more suited to the climate, cacti and sagebrush and metallic trees that changed size each day. I'm not sure I've ever been out there, she said as she sat down at the kitchen table with her mother. Of course you've been out there, her mother said. 
Let's talk together about memories you have of being out there. Her mother rolled an avocado back and forth on the spotless tabletop. The floor and the tabletop and the walls were all the same clean color and everything was equally clean and unused. The avocado was, of course, fake, as all avocados are. Then her mother looked up with pleading eyes. She gestured with the avocado as if that were what she was trying to say, or at least an approximation of that. When you were five years old, we held a birthday party for you in Mission Grove Park in the birthday party area. The one that's fenced in and kept secure in case there's another one of those occasional birthday... accidents. It was a simpler time because I personally had less memories and so less to superimpose upon the world, and so it was much clearer, and also I was younger, thus the world was simpler. I'm getting lost. We had a birthday party for you. There were presents and guests and a banner that said happy birthday. Your father picked you up and swung you around. Parents sometimes show love through velocity. I don't have that picture anymore, but at one point I did. Your father picked you up. It was your birthday. Do you understand? I don't remember having a father. Well, dear, he left quite some time ago. I don't just not remember having a father. I don't remember you ever telling me I didn't have a father. Her mother gripped the avocado and searched Jackie's face, presumably for some sense that communication had occurred. Whatever happened to Anna and Gracia? Jackie asked. Who? The other girls from one of my birthday parties? Oh, I don't know. We all lose touch with friends as we get older. There was a sound of movement in the backyard. Her mother lowered her eyes as Jackie sprang up and went to look out again. Still, the backyard and the lawn and the plants and the gravel. But now, also a shape in the gravel, against the fence. At first, vaguely man-shaped, then specifically man-shaped. Her eyes filled in the details as they were discovered. Blonde hair, a warm smile. Was that a smile? It was the same man from the kitchen at the moonlight all night. Who the hell is this guy? Jackie said, eyes and fists tightening. The sheriff's secret police were always easy to summon. As quick as shouting, hey, police, out your door, or whispering it into your phone. The phone didn't even have to be on. But calling for help was not something Jackie Firo was likely to do. What she was likely to do, she thought, as she did it, was charge out of the back door directly at the man, shouting, Coming for you, creep! There weren't even footprints in the gravel. That's how gone he was. She stumbled to a stop. No one. She jumped at a loud hiss behind her. I'm not afraid, she declared, and she wasn't. She was angry, which is the more productive cousin of fear. The sprinkler popped up, and the water hit her full on, and then the rest of the sprinklers, one by one, tossing their burden into the hot desert air to nourish the grass, or to float away and evaporate. I have definitely never been out here, she said, water streaming down her hair and face, into her clothes and shoes. How did I even know how to get to this house? Her mother, visible faintly through the kitchen window, took a deep, slow bite out of the wax avocado and, not looking back at her daughter, began with difficulty to chew. Chapter 10 I'm going to the movies. 
Diane called at Josh's door, not stopping to wait for a response. At first, when she started doing this, he would say, have fun, or I'm just going to stay home, because he could only hang out with his mother every so often, not every other night. I'm going to the movies, Diane called out for the fifth or sixth time in two weeks, and Josh began to resent her for going out so much without him. The resentment was not conscious. He just thought it was idiotic that she was going to the movies so often. Who does she think she is? Josh thought. Who are any of us, really? The house thought. Josh stopped answering, and Diane stopped expecting an answer. She would simply go. It was 8 p.m. The movie that evening was Josh Frankenheimer's 1973 adaptation of The Iceman Cometh. Again. Diane, like most people, had seen the film dozens of times in her life. There were nightly screenings of it by Night Vale City Ordinance. She didn't love the movie as a movie, but she appreciated it as a familiar comfort. She would often cry, particularly when the character, Larry Slade, said, As the history of the world proves, the truth has no bearing on anything. It is not a sad or emotional scene. In fact, it is quite a didactic one, but hers were tears of nostalgia. She would mouth the line, It's irrelevant and immaterial, along with Larry. Anyway, she wasn't there because of the movie. Diane bought a ticket from the sentient patch of Hayes working in the box office. Her name was Stacy, and Diane had developed a sort of friendship with her, or at least the comfortable familiarity of recognizing each other without making a big deal of it. Each time she went, she would look for Troy, while trying not to make it obvious that this was what she was doing. She sometimes was successful at keeping this even from herself, thinking as she looked around that she was just curious about new releases that had made it past the Night Vale Top Secret Censorship Board which consisted of a guy named Lewis who refused to watch any of the movies he judged on the risk he would see a forbidden idea or gesture, or the current price of a tub of popcorn, which Night Vale Cinemas kept strictly linked to the coal futures market for reasons no one in town understood. But really, she was looking for Troy, and she was not seeing him. She waited for a night no one else was in line, and no one else was in the box office, office with Stacy. Do you know a guy works here named Troy? Sure. He's not here tonight, though. Oh, shoot. I'm an old friend of his. I was hoping to run into him here. Do you know when he usually works? There was a long pause. Stacy, a haze with no face or body to read, continued to drift around the box office booth. Diane did not know if she had made Stacy uncomfortable with the question. I'm sorry, you probably can't answer. No, no, I'm looking at the schedule right now. Diane saw some papers rustling on a clipboard pinned to the wall. He's working tomorrow from 11 to 4. Oh, great, Diane managed. She felt like she was choking, but she was able to breathe just fine. She nodded as casually as she could. Thanks, Stacy. Diane's life at work was no easier. No one was talking about Evan. Nobody remembered Evan. She told everyone apologetically that she must have been confused. Because of your migraines? asked Janice Rio, who was assistant director of sales and, more rele relevantly, whose desk was closest to her lonely outpost near the server room. No, said Diane. I don't have... No. Hmm, hummed Janice. It was what she did when she didn't care what the other person had said, but the rhythm of conversation demanded a response. She walked away before more responses might be needed. Diane did not get much work done. 
which was not as responsible as she liked to think she was. Instead, she spent a lot of time looking at a couple of pages of notebook paper she had found on the floor of her car. The top sheet had a phone number and an address in writing that looked like Josh's. The address was in Old Town Nightvale and had a unit number at the end. Josh had a friend years ago who lived in that part of town, but Diane couldn't think of anyone he might know now who lived there. On the second sheet of paper, a different handwriting, still by Josh. His handwriting regularly changed depending on the size and shape his writing appendage took. A tentacle and a wing and a human hand, even with the same mind behind them, will will depend differently through the sheer fact of mass and shape. Still, like with anything relating to his transformations, Diane could always tell Josh's handwriting. There was always something at the core of it that pinged at the place inside her where she kept all the care she had for him. The note said, I want to meet this guy. Below it, in handwriting that was not Josh's and written in a different color ink, I'll get you his number, but don't call him yet. Josh. I won't. Duh. Does he have a picture? I want to know what he looks like. Who? If he doesn't, I can get one. Josh. What's his name? And then nothing more. Diane wondered who the boy was Josh was interested in. She didn't know if he had ever been on a date with anyone. He had never been willing to talk about dating with her. Diane wondered how to bring this up to Josh, and then she wondered if this was even the kind of thing you bring up with a teenager. So, you're interested in dating, she could ask, but expecting what? A yes? Then what? What's his name? She followed up in her daydreamed conversation. I don't know. Someone else knows. She projected him, saying, as he looked down his thin beak at his hands, which had twice as many fingers as her own. You wanted to ask the boy's name. Why didn't you pass the paper back to your friend? She imagined herself asking. Why are you reading my notes? She pictured him shouting, his eyes pink, his long teeth bared. He was crying, his wings flapping. She imagined this conversation a few times at her desk, and it never ended any better. She stuffed the note into her pocket and lied to Catherine that she was having a migraine. Catherine had said, I can see that. Diane didn't understand how someone could even see a migraine, and left work early, sometime between the hours of 11 and 4. She was anxious and driving fast, listening to the radio, tuned up to a loud but sensible volume. Cecil Palmer was talking to that scientist who was explaining how clouds are made of moisture and aren't cover for alien crafts or appendages of a gray sky being. It seemed ridiculous, like most things on the radio these days. He was bending facts to create an absurd argument just to get listeners stirred up. She was disappointed because Cecil and the new scientist were dating, and interviewing your partner for a news program seemed to be a conflict of interest, and, more importantly, the scientist was talking nonsense. Tiny, tiny droplets that are invisible individually, but as a whole, form a puffy white cloud, the scientist said. This was when she heard sirens, which at first she thought were municipal censorship to spare regular citizens from having to hear this kind of talk on community airtime, but then she realized they were actually on the road behind her. She was doing almost 50 in a 30 zone. Okay, she thought, so this I deserve. As she pulled her car over, she looked at the clock on her dashboard and realized there was no way she was going to get to the theater in time to see Troy. A feeling had risen to the top of her chest, slipped back down into her belly. 
She couldn't tell what that feeling was or if it was good or bad. There are no regular police in Nightvale. There used to be, but it was decided that a regular police force wasn't secure enough. Everyone knew that the regular police existed. Someone could use that information against Nightvale somehow. No one was sure how, but the threat was enough. There had been community meetings, and then the police had vanished with no official explanation. A couple of days later, the sheriff's secret police force appeared around town. Driving dark red sedans with gold racing stripes and black seven-pointed stars on the sides that say secret police on them. Staffed by the exact same people who had previously been regular police officers. Everyone felt much safer after that. Which is why it was so odd that the police car that had pulled her over was an old-fashioned police cruiser, light bar on the top and Crown Victoria body. The officer getting out of the vehicle was wearing just a regular police uniform, without the cape or blowgun belt. She dug around in her glove compartment for her insurance card and registration, and then in her pocket for her license. She pulled out Josh's crumpled up note. She stared at the note. She must have stared at it for a while. She wasn't sure. There was a loud tapping in her left ear. She looked up confused. There was a knuckle rapping on the window a few inches from her face. She screamed, but she wasn't scared. Her body screamed before she could do anything about it. The knuckle stopped hitting the glass. She held her hand to her chest. Her other pressed the window button. I'm sorry, she said, exhaling long, slow breaths. License and registration, please. The voice was vaguely familiar, but she was too in her own thoughts to care. Here you go. Silence. Diane saw khaki pants, khaki shirt, a black leather belt, and elbows as he read her documentation, and elbows as he wrote out a ticket. This took several minutes because, by law, police are required to describe the nature of the sunlight at the time of the infraction in verse, although meter and rhyme are optional. Searing. Yellow. And there's a sort of purplish halo around it before it fades into the mundanity of sky. It is a reminder, this sun of our near-infinite smallness in a near-infinite universe. But today, as I write this speeding ticket, I feel I could crush the sun like a grape under fruit, and that the universe is an umbrella that I may fold up and put away," the officer wrote on Diane's ticket. Diane thanked the officer when he handed her the ticket, but her eyes were on Josh's note on the passenger seat. Just be careful, um, Diane he said, and her head cleared enough to recognize where she knew the voice from. She looked up. He was blonde and his teeth shone. They briefly made eye contact, or she assumed they made eye contact through his mirrored shades, and then he was gone, walking quickly back to his cruiser. She tried to breathe in and missed. It was Troy. The voice of Night Vale. That's got all hail. All plant your face into the fallow earth and weep it into prosperity, it concluded, before cutting the ribbon to officially open the new downtown roller rink. A big thanks to the glow cloud for its speech, and of course, all hail the mighty glow cloud. A warning to our listeners. There have been reports of counterfeit police officers on the roads, who, instead of looking after our interests, 
work under arbitrary authority to unfairly target and extort those who are least able societally to fight back. If you see one of these false police act right away by shrugging and thinking, what am I going to do? And then seeing if anything funny is on Twitter. And now some sobering news. Station intern Jody was asked to alphabetize everything in the station as part of the shared secret police daily census of every single item in Nightvale. Unfortunately, Jody was so studious in her work that she alphabetized herself as well, and what was once a helpful and hard-working intern is now a pile of limbs and organs arranged part by gory part from A to Z. To the family and friends of intern Jody, she will be missed especially since she alphabetized herself early in the process and so most of the station still needs doing. If you need college credit or a place to hide from the dangerous world outside, come on down to the station today and start a long, healthy life in radio. In other news, a woman wearing a bulky trench coat and aviator goggles, speaking on behalf of Lenny's Bargain House of Gardenwares and Machine Parts, announced that there may have been some slight problems with a few of the things they sold. Some of the garden fountains we sold are actually motion-activated turrets, she said. Also, it's possible that we put stickers on armed explosives that said snail poison. And, while we stand by the fact that they will, in fact, kill snails, it should be noted that they will also kill any living organism within several hundred feet of the snails. We probably should have put that on the label. So sue us. On second thought, she said, don't sue us. You don't even know what part of the government we work for. Who are you going to sue? And don't you think we've already paid off all the judges? You don't have a chance. She cackled, waving an absurdly long cigarette holder, terminating in an unlit cigarette. This went on for several uncomfortable moments. Her laughter subsided into a labored snorting and then a few long intentional sighs. Oh man, she said. I needed that. All right. I think that's everything. Oh, yes, I forgot absolutely do not touch the flamingos. She nodded to the few journalists in attendance and returned to her burrow near City Hall, where she was later driven out and ethically captured by the local cage and release pest control. The Nightvale PTA released a statement today saying that if the school board could not promise to prevent children from learning about dangerous activities like drug use and library science during recess periods, they would be blocking all school interests with their bodies. They pulled hundreds of bodies out from trucks, saying, We own all of these bodies, and we will not hesitate to use them to create great flesh barricades if that is what it takes to prevent our children from learning. The school board responded by criticizing the use of PTA funds to purchase so many bodies, but PTA treasurer Diane Creighton said that sadness is eternal, that weakness is another word for humanity, and that all will pass. All will pass. She was holding a cup of coffee close to her chest and murmuring that to herself. I'm not sure if she was referring to this current controversy or if she was even aware of our presence. More on this story, somewhere in the world, always happening, whether we report it or not. And a big thank you to local scientist, certified genius, and, oh yeah, my boyfriend, Carlos, who came by earlier to explain clouds. Need something explained in language that for all you know, could be scientific? Feel free to drop by Carlos's lab. Sometimes he'll be there. Sometimes it's date night and he's with me. I am his boyfriend. I don't know if I mentioned that.